Hey everybody, Cheryl Todd here from Gun Freedom Radio. And I am here with my good friend and fellow DC Project delegate, Kim Petters. Now Kim is a retired U.S. Air Force Staff Sergeant and a veteran advocate in the state of Delaware. Kim's career in political advocacy began when she successfully led a campaign to increase medical marijuana access to those diagnosed with PTSD. And since then, Kim remains a key player involved in several other bills introduced in the Delaware legislature to include a bill to restore Second Amendment rights to medical marijuana patients, which so far has passed the Senate floor unanimously in Delaware, which is super <laughs> heavy uh, Democrat. Welcome to the show, Kim Petters. Hi, thank you so much for having me on to talk about all of this. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, right there, I think people have just kind of like paused, like, wait, what now? First of all, we're talking yeah. about marijuana. We're talking about marijuana and guns. We're talking about getting things passed unanimously in a heavy uh, democratic state uh, that has to do with uh, the Second Amendment and marijuana. Like, people's heads are exploding right now. <laughs> so we'll let them kind of absorb that information and just kind of start with how did a nice girl like you end up being <laughs> a passionate supporter and a passionate advocate for something like cannabis? It's funny you ask that because if you would ask me five years ago, if I'd ever be doing this, I would have said, no way, not a chance. Absolutely not. And so... Well, you know, while I was in the military, um, while I was deployed, one of the jobs I had, and unfortunately it's something that needs to be done, was the human remain missions for all of our fallen U.S. coming back. Um, and so I took that home with me. I did. It, uh, I had PTSD. And so I got retired out of the military with PTSD. And, you know, I was one of those veterans taking the typical PTSD cocktail. I was taking something for anti-anxiety medication, antidepressant, something to help me sleep, you know, the, the usual rundown. And, you know, a few years of doing this, it started to take a toll on me. And I just thought, you know, these medications really aren't helping anyways. And I did some research on the computer and I found veterans were having success using cannabis, using marijuana. And I thought, no way, not a chance. I mean, I was just such a conservative mother and just no way. Yeah, but I was desperate. And I mean, if you really heard the testimony from these veterans and I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And so I asked my brother-in-law, <laughs> the only person I knew that could help me out. And uh, I tried it and it worked instantly instantly I felt better instantly I was laughing and and on one hand that's great but on the other hand in my eyes these are drugs yeah. I am doing something terrible and what do I do but you know so but I felt better so I, I kept going with it privately nobody knew I was hiding in a corner of my bathroom upstairs and uh 
before I knew it, I wasn't, I realized, oh my gosh, I have not taken anything for anxiety in quite a while. Wow. When is the last time I needed that sleep medication? You know, and the last thing I came off of within, I'd say maybe six to eight months was the depression medication. I no longer needed any medications. I felt great. The medications were no longer taking a toll on my body. And I thought, you know, Delaware's got a program for this. They have a medical marijuana program for PTSD. And I'm going to make an honest woman out of myself. And I am going to get a card. You know, because I never had been arrested before. And I feel like I'm, you know, living this scary life, smoking weed as medicine. But what do I do? It's working. And, it, and I feel better. And... And because I felt better and because it was working, I knew that I needed every other veteran in my state to have access also. And yeah. And so, so I went to go get myself a card, but I saw how difficult it was. It required a, it was the only, uh, um, diagnosis to get access for medical marijuana that needed a specialist. It needed a psychiatrist signature. Well, most veterans, we don't see psychiatrists, we see regular doctors. Um, And so, and Delaware is actually lacking in psychiatrists. And so I saw how hard it was to gain access. And I said, you know what? Cannabis is helping so much. All veterans need access. I'm willing to put myself out there. I am willing to tell the world I have PTSD. I am using cannabis. It's saving my life and it can save a lot of other veterans too. And so I had no idea where to begin. And I Googled (laughs) marijuana in Delaware and I found a group that was setting out to change laws. And while I was there, I met a man named Rich Jester who said, I I know how to write bills. I I would write one and uh, show you how to work with legislators, but you're going to have to push it forward. It's going to take a veteran. And long story short, I created a team of vets and we pushed it forward and it passed. And it's, it's been amazing. I mean, PTSD is the number one reason people in Delaware are getting access to cannabis. Um, we have once a year free programs for veterans to get cards because it is pricey. It costs $200. And, you know, and, and someone would wonder, well, why would you want cannabis instead of regular prescription medication? And I'll tell you the reason is, because those prescription medications are deadly. Yes. Because yes. they're addictive. Yes. Veterans yes. seen at the VA, as it stands right now, double the national average, just an accidental overdose from taking prescribed medications. Double the national average. My generation of veterans, the Iraq and Afghanistan, OEF, OIF veterans, we face a generate we're the generation of vets of that face the opiate crisis mm-hmm. so and i'll explain how that happens so when the vietnam veterans returned from war a lot of them ptsd wasn't really recognized back then and so a lot of them self-medicated with alcohol and as many as three quarters three-fourths of veterans vietnam veterans abuse have, have are documented as abusing alcohol and Whereas with my generation of veterans, when we first came back from the wars, when the war, when the war t- in 2001, when the wars were really ramping up and we, veterans were coming back with a slew of problems, both, you know, mental and war-related injuries, it was then that within the, within the VA, 
opiate prescriptions rose by 274%. Whoa. So we're throwing opiates and pills at these veterans. Well, let's look at a few more statistics. 70% of veterans who commit suicide seen at the VA have benzos in their system. These are medications that come with a side effect of suicidal ideation. Whereas cannabis, that does not happen. Cannabis is non-addictive and cannabis, I think almost most importantly, is impossible to overdose from. No matter how much cannabis you consume, you are never gonna have to worry about a you know, medical emergency. So not only is it the safer alternative, but it's also the most effective for many veterans, including myself. Absolutely. So with choosing, oh, go ahead. (laughs) So this is just such a fascinating journey that you've been on. So uh, you come home from, from combat, right? You've done one of the, I just can't even imagine what a difficult job. One of the most difficult jobs is to reclaim the, the bodies, right? Of those that have been uh, killed in battle, like, going to the battlefield and reclaiming those bodies. Um, well, they you have to say, I personally was not in combat. They came to me. God. But every single one in the entire AOR came through me. Through you. Uh, and so, you know, those who do jobs that, you know, on our behalf, the scars, whether they're scars you can see or whether there's the, those internal scars, it is our duty and our obligation to be sure that we are doing everything that we can to give you the care and the help that you need. And what, what a, a story it is to say that not only did you have to come out of the closet to say, I have PTSD, because that's a risk right there, right? It's a stigma is so real. Right? And then you have to come out of this other closet saying, look, I found a way to treat my PTSD, but it's a dirty little secret. And I have to act like a guilty little teenager as a full grown adult who knows what's best for myself because there has been this huge stigma and bias against uh, cannabis, marijuana. And I personally had to overcome my own um, bigotry towards marijuana. I've not ever used it. I don't have like a medical reason to use it, but you know, I grew up when it was like, well, the stoners in high school, you know, they were the ones that, and I was, you know, just like little miss goody two shoes and no, I would never do such a thing. I'm sure like you're saying about yourself. Yeah. I'm how do I rectify in my mind that I am this person and now I'm breaking these laws and I'm being all secretive. And so those are two humongous closets that you had to come out of. But I absolutely love that you set yourself into motion and you said, well, if I'm struggling with this, I know there's hundreds, thousands, maybe more people who are dealing with this and I am going to reach out. You found Rick Jester, you reached out to the legislature and you started getting things changed 
And I, I don't love anything as much as I love a story <laughs> of what one can do. Um, so I am, I am just really, I have so much respect for you and I'm just in awe of, of who you are and what you have accomplished. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about kind of some of the reason why somebody would choose cannabis. I think it right. makes perfect sense. It's something natural that grows up out of the ground. It doesn't have, you know, 12 pages of side effects, right? Yeah. So, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yet there's still people out there that want to try to terrify us about the evils yes. of, of weed, you know, the evils of marijuana. Yeah. And um, I just think that they're probably in that that bigoted mode that I used to be in. And you're one of the big reasons hearing your story personally, firsthand sitting and asking you questions and you, you being so open and welcome to hearing me ask the questions and letting me just expose my ignorance. <laughs> um, it helped move me to a new place where I can see, well, this is kind of a duh. This is kind of like a what? Why would we not be doing this? And so here's a piece of the story that a lot of people don't know. Those who use medical marijuana, right? They have a choice to make. And that choice is you can get healthy with this natural uh, medicine or you can exercise your Second Amendment rights to keep and bear arms. Now talk to us about that. How do those two things even come into play together? Right. So state laws and federal laws conflict with each other. Okay. Even if, so myself as an example, I follow doctor's orders and I follow state laws as far as the medical marijuana program goes. However, according to the federal government, cannabis is still looked at as illegal. So according to the federal government, I am still technically an unlawful user regardless of state laws, whether it be recreational or medicinal. Hmm. So for a person like me, if I want to, which I do want to, go into a gun shop and I would like to purchase a firearm. I've never been arrested. I've served my country and I'm a law-abiding citizen. I would get denied that sale of purchase. And the reason is because on the NICS form, which is the federal background check, as you know, that when required with any purchase, with any sale of firearms, it specifically asks on question 11E, are you an unlawful user of marijuana, regardless of the laws in your state? And technically, according to the federal law, the federal government, I am an unlawful user. So I would have to check yes which means I would be denied sale. Now, if I were to lie and check no, that could land me as much as five years in jail. Exactly. So basically, if someone like myself, who chose medical marijuana instead of the pills for health reasons, because it's safer and more effective, I also have to choose, if you want medical marijuana, you have to give up your right to bear arms which is so unconstitutional. I don't even know where to begin because here's the thing. If I wanted to stay on opiates, if I wanted to stay on benzos, if I wanted to stay on all those other medications, I could keep my Second, second Amendment rights. And see, two things about this bother me. One, because I lose my rights, the ones that I fought for, mm -hmm. but also 
there's other veterans and other people with PTSD who won't get help because they're afraid to lose their rights. Right. Either that or they are, or they're in a position where they're breaking the law or some people will stick to, instead of getting a safe medicinal product from a dispensary, now they're buying on the street, which can have mold, pesticides, mildew, all sorts of different things. They no longer have a safe product. And it's just not right to put anyone in that position. Nobody. Yet you can drink as much alcohol as you want and still be able to purchase a firearm. You just can't have cannabis. Now, something else, um, one of my favorite um, legislators here in Delaware said this. He said, you know, Kim, it's interesting because some of the products they, that they sell in the dispensary are topical. And it does have THC and CBD, but you don't ingest it. You don't get the psychoactive um, effect from it. You don't get high, so to speak. However, because you have that medical marijuana card, you still lose your right to bear arms. And my, this legislator said that's about as, uh, makes about as much sense as, you know, losing your license for using rubbing alcohol, you know, <laughs> or, you know, it just makes no sense. And it's putting people in this position all over the country. And honestly, quite frankly, 25 million Americans use cannabis have reported using smoking weed or vaping weed or eating it, consuming it, however you want. 25 million Americans are either breaking the law or losing their Second Amendment rights. Mm. Right. And that's the ones that reported. And we all know that, you know, there's a lot of people, especially when you're in that right. situation, you're not going to tell anybody anything. You're going to stay in that upstairs bedroom like a guilty, you know, <laughs> having your guilty secret like a, a teenager. and you know, I, I think that we're at such an interesting moment in time for you and I to be, uh, to have met and to be having these conversations because, um, just yesterday I saw, saw two news stories that relate to this. One is, you know, that, that way overproducing and over medicating, over prescribing of the, the op opioids, uh, Johnson and Johnson were just, uh, they, a judgment was just levied against them in a lawsuit to have to pay, what was it, $500 million back? And that's in one state. So wow. that's happening at the exact same time as this other report that the, I think it was the uh, DES, they are asking for a research study on cannabis. So that that's sounds right. like they're opening the doors and paving the ways to move it out of that, that category where it is like the, Oh, you use weed. Well, you know, you're a hippie or there's something wrong with you or you're an undesirable in some way uh, to be able to see. And, and personally I get frustrated because it's like, Oh, if they can make money off of it. Okay. Then great. But if it's, you know, something that you could grow, in your own backyard or on your windowsill or however that's done. Uh, well, now that's just frowned upon and you know, we, we've yeah. got legal. But you can bring as much beer as you want and you can grow your own tobacco and those are two lethal substances. It's, <laughs> oh, I know. And you know, it really is unfortunate and I don't want to get too much into the cannabis realm because I know you want to keep it firearms related, but I do have to say something else that a lot of people aren't aware of when it comes to um, marijuana laws. 
states that have legalized with recreational programs have seen as much as a 25% reduction in opiate overdoses because that substitution effect is so real. And then states that have um, really good medical programs have seen as much as a 10% decrease in opiate prescriptions going out. See, it's powerful. This is, I mean, this can change lives. This is saving lives. I have to believe that. And so um, this whole idea of, of PTSD, you know, people have this idea in their mind that those with PTSD, maybe they need these really heavy narcotics because they're just, you know, a loose cannon waiting to just go off somewhere in public. Um, somehow, I, I look at you and I know you and I've talked to you and, and hundreds of other people that do have PTSD and that wouldn't describe a single one of them. Um, what can you do to, to help people better understand, you know, what we're really talking about when you're talking about um, PTS? So one thing to understand with PTS, it is not like what you see in the movies. A veteran is not going to hear a loud noise and all of a sudden hit the deck and start freaking out and become violent. That's, that doesn't happen. We have hundreds of thousands of veterans in the United States with PTSD, PTS. And it's a bad habit. See, we, re we got rid of the disorder and I need to get better at that too, with PTS. If we had a problem with veterans becoming violent in America, with PTS, you would know about it. We are talking about people who are trained. In the military, there's this saying, and I will not say the cuss word, but I will leap over it. We are trained to kill and blow up their, <laughs> okay? Two things. Their poop. We're trained to do. Blow up their poop, right? <laughs> yeah, the bag. We're trained to go over there and, and you know, and it, but do you see people coming back? Do you see veterans coming back, freaking out and doing these crazy things? Do you see them shooting up places or creating bombs and, and putting them in buildings? Like, you do not see this. They're not loose. Can, more often than not, veterans who are struggling with PTSD are isolating. They want to be by themselves. They're struggling with depression and anxiety, and they're having awful nightmares. But it doesn't mean they're a harm to themselves or other people. Yes, suicide is a factor when it comes to PTSD, but it doesn't even mean that someone PTSD is going to be suicidal. Right. And, you know, I was really thinking about this, and we all know that PTSD does not just come from combat or come from war, right? What about people who went through, who heard the words, you have cancer, and had to fight for their lives? What about someone who, God forbid, no one wants to go through this, but maybe lost their child? Yes. What about someone who was an assault victim? Yes. Should all of these people be treated as crazy because they're experiencing symptoms of trauma? Not at all. The stigma is so unfortunately real and alive in America. And it's going to take people sticking up for each other and saying, hey, no, actually, when you hear someone saying, oh, that, that neighbor's got PTSD, you better be careful of them. No, actually, I talk to them all the time. They're great. 
<laughs> you know, they're fine. You know, they're the same people you see outside mowing their lawn and gardening and playing with their kids and going for a jog. And they're not, PTSD does not mean that they're going to harm anybody or that they should have their guns taken away from them. Absolutely. More, There really is such a misunderstanding about what trauma is and how people handle it and deal with it. I think it's so much like grief. You know, we may never get fully over, like get over the loss of your child. You're never going to do that. Right. But you, uh, you handle it, you deal with it one day at a time. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Um, but that trauma is part of you, but you shouldn't be shunned. You shouldn't be labeled. You shouldn't be, um, kind of set off to the side. Like you're going to, you're made of glass and you're going to break at the slightest, uh, provocation. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing that, that up and, and talking about it the way that you have, um, something right now that's just so top of my mind all the time is the threat of these new red flag gun laws. And so somebody comes out of that closet and says, I do have PTSD and I want to seek help. Well, they're risking that somebody's going to flag them with a red flag gun law. Somebody says, I use this kind of medication to treat a trauma. Okay, you're not in control of yourself, someone could say. And they could hit you with a red flag gun law. And exactly as you said, uh, my husband Danny and I were having this conversation the other day that, you know, when when people want like this universal background check, which is a complete um, a mythical creature to begin with, um, and even if it could be made a, a decent system, then it's only as good as the information. So what if somebody gets uh, gets a diagnosis? You know, yesterday they didn't have a diagnosis. Today they do have a diagnosis of stage four cancer. They are going to be in a different mindset than they were. It doesn't mean they're going to be a harm to self or others, but is, and I don't know how HIPAA laws would work with this, but is the physician now supposed to report that to somebody, right? Because this person is going to be in a different mindset. So I actually have been doing as much research as I can in the past week, and I've spoken to as many veterans as I can, and I have not gotten a clear answer for this one specific issue. So I know that veterans who are seen at the VA, if they are deemed incompetent or unable to take care of their own finances, whether for mental or physical reasons, the VA then starts a file on them that they send to the FBI and the FBI inputs that information into the NICS system, which will deny them right to purchase a firearm, right? And so I wanted, I did see that a uh, bill came out, HR 1181, I believe it is, it came out, um, yes, HR 1181, which what that would do is it made it so that, and it came out in 2017, made it so that those people are not reported, those veterans are not reported to the FBI. It passed the House. But I, it looks like it stalled out from there, right? And so I needed more answers. And so I called some of the most knowledgeable veterans I know and said, hey, what is the deal? And they said, you know, Kim, all of them either had a different answer or weren't too sure. And you know what every single one of them said? 
Well, you know, this is the exact reason why we don't let the VA know exactly what's going on anyways, because we're never really sure when they're going to take our guns away. And no veteran wants that to happen. Even veterans who do not own guns still don't want their right to bear arms taken away from them because it's a kick in the face. It's a kick in the teeth. It's, you know, you were, you were good enough to handle all this weaponry overseas, but now that you're back home, hmm, nope, sorry, you can't. You're, we're going to deem you incompetent because you're unable to take care of your own finances. Yes. And because you can't take care of your own finances, we're going to strip your right to bear arms. That right there is a deterrent for veterans to get help. They don't want to go to the VA and get rated incompetent. They don't want to get cannabis and have their rights taken away from, from them. You know, and it's like these are the people who are trained by the DOD. The <laughs> Department of Defense has trained these people, these men and women who have fought for our country, who come back and they live in fear of having their Second Amendment rights taken from them. And that is not okay. That is absolutely not okay. I have a friend who was texting me a month or so ago, showing me, taking pictures of the letter that, that uh, this person had received, uh, stating that. And I, I explained that it was something that started under the Obama administration, but it was, yes. I thought that it had been squelched. Um, but there are certain things that like, once it's part of a culture, and if it's part of the culture of the VA to do this, then it's, it's just there, you know, that they're going to continue right. to, to speak in this way and report in this way. But it could be, like you said, that it's, it went through the house and then didn't get through the Senate or something like that. But it this, looks like it stalled out. This, I'm not a hundred percent, but it does look like it stalled. This is something that has to be fixed. Now, um, I have another question that I want to come back to, but since we're talking about the, the legislature, you know, we do have a few uh, federal and state legislatures, legislators that they get how crazy and backwards and upside down and ludicrous all of this is. Um, Kentucky Congressman Thomas Massey is one, and in your state, Delaware, uh, State Senator Anthony Del Colo is another. Mm -hmm. um, Tell us what they're doing to, how are they interacting with the current laws um, and how are they trying to change them? Okay. So Senator Del, Anthony Del Colo in Delaware, he's at the state level. He sponsored and championed a bill, SB 79, which would restore firearms rights to medical marijuana patients. And most recently, it went through the House, or went through the Senate, and it passed unanimously. Every single senator voted yes, because when you want to talk common sense, this is common sense. There is no other medication in the world where you lose your Second Amendment rights. Why would cannabis be one of them? And uh, so, but unfortunately, our session uh, is done for the year, so when the House comes back in January. I'm hoping it will also pass unanimously. And so far from all the legislators I've spoken to, it looks like it's going to. So, and unfortunately, so what's, so that's good and bad. So it's good on one hand because, you know, it's a state level bill can't change anything federally, but it does one, it sends a message to the federal government 
Absolutely. And two, it makes it so that if someone is pulled over and they do have their firearm that they did buy and then later became a medical marijuana patient and they have both at the same time, both cannabis and firearms, they're not going to get charged. They're not going to get arrested. Now, does that help someone like me, this bill, go in and purchase a firearm? No, unfortunately it doesn't because again, it needs to be changed at the federal level, which is where Congressman Massey and Congressman Mooney come in. They actually have a bill at the federal level, which also seeks to restore Second Amendment rights to patients. However, I'm gonna be honest with you, Cheryl, that bill is not going to go anywhere because the chair of the committee it's assigned to um, is Congressman Nadler. Nadler, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and it doesn't look like he's going to let that bill move anywhere. It's Nadler. And I'm Nadler, not yeah. terribly surprised. Um, man, that is, I mean, and go ahead. It, it is a little frustrating um, of Congressman Nadler because he supports people's rights to access to cannabis and he supports legalization. However, he doesn't support those same people getting their Second Amendment rights back. And I rights that should have never been taken from them. And I don't understand it. Yeah. No, it makes no sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. And it, it is frustrating. But every time there's a, a win, you know, like getting a unanimous vote in, in the Senate in Delaware, that's huge. That's powerful uh, to help encourage other states other kim petters in the state of arizona <laughs> kim petters in the state of kentucky that has thomas massey as their congressperson i mean let's start where there can possibly be some wins and hopefully it'll just be like a snowball effect that people will run out of uh nonsense reasons and excuses to not support it um because i do think that there is just so much um there's knee-jerk bigotry uh, either towards marijuana, knee-jerk bigotry towards people who own guns, and sometimes towards both things. So um, right. we, we just chip away, right? Right, right. And I think, I do think when it comes to those who are typically against firearms and those who want heavy control, uh, you know, gun control, at least in my state Senate, the ones who did vote yes to this, it's because they do realize it is discrimination to have it, cannabis be the only medication. I mean, we're talking about someone who maybe is going through cancer and, or, and they have cancer and they're going through chemotherapy and they want cannabis to help them get through that phase in life. At a time when they're weak and most vulnerable, is that really when we should be taking away their right to bear arms? Absolutely. I mean, it just, it makes absolutely no sense. Yet if they wanted to stay on the opiates and the Oxycontin through chemo, they could keep their guns. How does that make any sense? It makes no sense. It just doesn't. Um, so I think we've kind of answered this question just through the, the various ways that we've been discussing uh, what cannabis is and what PTSD is and is not. But um, for those who are out there still struggling with the idea that, well, we can't have somebody all like, I don't even, high, I guess is the right word. Yeah. And, and owning guns. Like, how can they keep and bear arms and also have the ability to be high? And if it's the PTSD that's causing them. So should we take guns 
from people who have PTSD? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Here's the thing. The only argument that anybody could even possibly stand on is, well, what if they're a suicide risk? However, even then, I don't think that's a reason to take someone's guns. I think that's a reason to make sure that person is under 24-hour surveillance and make sure that that person is safe. Because where there's a will, there's a way. And if a person is suicidal, the person needs to be watched, not have their guns taken away from them. Are you going to take away their pills too? Are you going to take away all the cleaning chemicals? Are you going to make sure there's no ropes, strings? You know, they can't have their car. They Maybe they want to go out and crash their car. Do you take their car away from them? You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's not the object that's a threat to the person. It's the person that could possibly be a threat to the person. And so when it comes to PTSD, you know, uh, this knee-jerk reaction to take guns isn't a good one because all that does is hinder people from getting help. Exactly. Exactly. It has unintended consequences. It truly does. Absolutely. I couldn't have said that better myself. Um, so as I <laughs> mentioned at the top of, as we start winding down here, uh, at the top of the interview, you are a fellow DC Project delegate. I'm from Arizona, you're from Delaware. This was your first year going on our uh, DC Project trip. Uh, amazing experience. Oh, well, and you, amazing. Made, you made it amazing uh, because I was lucky enough, we travel in teams, usually three, four ladies to a team, and you were on uh, my team. And just being able to uh, listen and watch how you interacted with the legislatures because those that, that aren't aware about of what the DC project is, is it's 50 women, one from each state. Um, we meet once a year in our nation's capital. We break into teams. We go and sit down with our individual legislatures, but legislators, but like, you know, we go into the Delaware office. I'm Arizona. I go in with, with Kim and uh, we get to interact in a real way. We get to have true conversations to help our legislators understand where we're coming from, you know, uh, why we value the Second Amendment, because we don't look like the stereotype of <laughs> the average gun owner, you know, they're supposed to be 50 and over bearded camel wearing guys, right? <laughs> and so you know, our lane is the second amendment, but then we each have a lane within a lane and, and yours was the cannabis issue. And that was so powerful. Um, you talked for a minute about that. What was that like for you as you watched people on both sides of the debate kind of have aha moments as you spoke? I think realizing how many staff members and legislators that truly weren't aware cannabis patients lose their second amendment rights. That was, uh, and be, being able to let them know is honestly groundbreaking because it starts with knowledge. People can't do anything about what they don't know. You know, um, I, I do have to say when I left when I came home from that DC project week experience, I I don't think I've ever been more motivated in my life. You know, you, as you said, everybody has their own lane. And mine was, I lose my Second Amendment rights for no other reason than a non-toxic, non-addictive, non-lethal medication that I take, okay? 
other women were there saying how the one place they didn't carry their firearm was on a college campus because it's a gun-free zone and how they were sexually assaulted because of it. And they were unable to defend themselves. And then I listened to, you know, other women talk about how, you know, they had to fight for their right just to have a safe place, a gun range, a safe gun range within city limits, you know, for people to practice and, you know, and how they made that change. And then I listened to other women, how they had a stalker. And they were in a gun-free zone restaurant, the only place they didn't carry their firearm. And the stalker, who they reported and did everything right, came into that restaurant and shot this young woman's husband six times, killing him. And quite honestly, Cheryl, when I left there, I never, I can't say that I feel more of a drive, felt more of a drive ever to get my Second Amendment rights back. I don't want to become a victim. These women have encouraged me. They've encouraged me to get my rights back, not just for myself, but for every other person in Delaware and quite honestly across the United States. Just because you choose a different medicinal option does not mean you should lose your right to protect yourself, quite frankly. Absolutely. And so I just learned, honestly, I learned so much and I, I left there beyond inspired. I, I can't even tell you. <laughs> Wow. It was fantastic. And I don't know if you were inspired before, during, or after that, but I understand that uh, we might be visiting your office there one day, or maybe at your state legislature. You're thinking about maybe running for office at some point. Is that so? Well, you know, a few years ago, getting involved in you know, getting bills passed and advocating. I've also learned quite a bit on what goes on at Legislative Hall. And I'm starting to think maybe I want to throw my hat in the ring and I want to be part of the conversation because this isn't just about me. This is about my children. It's about my grandchildren. This is about my community. This is about my state that I love. And who knows? Who knows? Uh, maybe and definitely not this next election but the one after 2022 who knows i love it it's something i'm definitely interested in and, and you know i would love to have more of a voice and i would quite honestly love nothing more than to represent my district so we'll see it's just a matter of when and we'll see what happens well and that's the thing is that you know we have to have people who are in it for the right reason we have to have public yeah servants. And yes. I know you and I know that is how you would approach this. You would represent yes. those who have voted you in as a representative instead of being a politician, how so, so too many are. Uh, You've broken up there for a minute. Oh, okay. The uh, screen too, froze. Hmm. Am I back now? Oh, you're back. You're back. But I do, I think I see where you were going with that. And, and you're right. I would represent this district. I, this wouldn't be my district. I would be theirs. I would work for them and I would advocate for them. Absolutely. And I would get their tax. I would make their tax dollars worth it. I, I would work as hard as I possibly could for them. We just, Honestly, and with integrity, and with strong values and morals, and absolutely. Right. And I think we need more of that. 
We do. We have too many politicians. And the difference for me between a public servant and a politician is, uh, you know, who they're doing it for. A politician is very self-serving, right? They're trying to figure out how they can game the system for financial uh, gain or popularity gain, you know, fame, those kinds of things. And um, that is absolutely not you. You are definitely, um, you are people driven, you are purpose driven. Uh, and I, I think that uh, that would be an amazing thing for you to put your hat in the ring. Well, I've kept you for quite a while. I appreciate so much your time, your wisdom on this. Like I said, I, you've moved me from a place where I was like, I don't know about this whole marijuana thing. And I'm also, you know, my husband and I have a gun. It. So it's kind of baked into our brain that, you know, oh, marijuana, bad. You know, because if somebody opens yeah. the wallet and I see that little green card, the sale stops immediately. I, I am federally bound to stop the sale. Um, and, and I, it's hard for me because I, I feel for, I now feel for the reason they have that card, but I can't, I, I can only encourage them to do what you've done. And that is be a voice, get out there, change the laws um, take, uh, I think one of the things Thomas Massey, Congressman Thomas Massey wants to do is take marijuana off of the schedule that it's on. Yes. Right. Yes. So it's no longer seen as a narcotic in the same way. Is that correct? Did I say that right? Well, if it's, if it's D or rescheduled, it puts it in a completely different classification, which would then not block right to bear arms, which that would then allow better research, allow better access. Yes, absolutely. That would be one solution. That, or just take the question off the 4473, because why is it on there in the first place, really? I mean... Right, exactly. Because it doesn't go, it doesn't say all the other schedules or all the other... Um, narcotics it just specifically targets that one but so That's as we right. wrap up, uh, Kim I know you're not really a public person yet but if people feel like you you started a fire inside of them and they they have more questions for you or they they want to reach out to you or follow the work you're doing or support you either in your state or in their home state that kind of work you're doing what would be the best way for them to to find you and do those things well, they can email me at kim.m.petters at gmail, um, or quite honestly, a lot of people do find me on Facebook and send me a message, and you would be surprised how many people I've teamed up with, and we've moved mountains together that way. And so, honestly, Reed, you can reach out to me either way, and I would be happy to help anybody. Um, if anyone's listening to this and they want to get some legislation started in their state and they just have no clue how to do it, I would be happy to help them. I would walk them through the entire process because the more states that get on board, the better message it is sent to, the stronger the message is sent to the federal government. Fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for your service. Uh, while you were in the Air Force, and even now, you are continuing to serve <laughs> others. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you Thank for your you. time. And uh, we will definitely be checking back in and talking to you soon. Thank you so much, Kim Petters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Absolutely. All right, stick around. There's always lots more coming up on Gun Freedom Radio. <laughs> 